Welcome to Talking Fraud, a podcast series by MIAA, providing you with informal insights on all things fraud. This podcast was recorded in April 2023, and all information within the podcast was correct at the time of recording. Episode 3, Recent Cases. Welcome back again to another episode of Talking Fraud, MIA's Anti-Fraud Service podcast. Um, This particular episode, we're going to look at some cases that either we've investigated at MIA ourselves or cases that have been in the media. What we're really going to focus on is a little bit about background about the cases um, and pull out some particular issues. And the particular topic with these cases is going to be individuals who don't have the employment history, don't have the experience, don't have the qualifications that they claim to have, and then have obtained positions within the NHS. And we're going to talk about some of those cases, some of the issues, how the fraud was identified, some of the risks related to those particular types of cases. But before we get into that, we'll do some quick introductions around the table. So, Daryl? Yep. Hello again, everybody. It's uh, Daryl Davis here. I'm MIA's uh, Head of Anti-Fraud Services and looking forward to discussing today's topic. My name's Claire Smallman. I'm Senior Anti-Fraud Manager for MIAA uh, and I focus on the investigation side of the business. And I'm Kevin Howells. Uh, I'm Anti-Fraud Manager. I'm largely in charge of proactive services, but like everyone in MIA fraud team, we do investigate cases as well. Uh, and I'm your host today, Paul Bell. I'm Senior Anti-Fraud Manager with MIAA. Uh, and today's topic, we're really sort of talking about something that has never really gone away in the NHS. We always see these sort of cases and issues crop up on a regular basis. So in terms of introduction to a couple of the cases we're going to talk about and pull apart and analyse, I will pass you over to Claire. Thanks, Paul. So, yeah, um, I think the first one we have a chat about is a case where an individual who is an executive member of the NHS um, had falsified qualifications um, in order to secure a number of positions within the NHS. I think over a um, 11-year period, he was able to earn over a million pounds, um, which the part of the investigation showed that this individual wouldn't have been a pointed in the positions had he not had the qualifications that the individual stated um, that they had. The individual uh, was sentenced to two years in prison for his actions. So I suppose it's like Paul was just saying there, you know, we're finding more and more um, allegations come to us in respect of um, people who are falsifying qualifications in order to get jobs and not just of an executive level, but all various levels within the NHS, um, lying on application forms. Um, and obviously this individual had done it for a considerable amount of time and was able to earn a significant amount of money and live, um, you know, a lifestyle accustomed to that kind of wages that he'd received. Um, so I suppose it's, you know, in terms of putting the questions out there, with regards to um, some of these frauds, I think it's you know safe to say um, we do get a number. And I suppose, what is your experience of some of these types of cases within the NHS? Is it worth doing a bit of back, saying a bit of background first? In that, anyone who applies for a job in the NHS these days has to prove their their identity in order to get get the role. But that didn't always used to be the case. I'm thinking back to my employment history. I think 2008 was the first job I ever had to take in a passport and proof of address. So that's 15 years ago. But there are people who've worked in the NHS 30 and 40 years. And if you've always worked for the same organisation, the checks when they joined in the 80s or the 90s aren't going to be as stringent as they are now. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, this particular case was back to 2005. Mm -hmm. So as you say, the sort of historic um, cases. And this individual, you know, was able to then become a chief executive of a trust. He was a chairman of another organisation. So, yeah, he was working, as you say, up in those sort of higher levels and back back into the days where, as you say, now I think with fraud becoming more known um, Mm -hmm. and people more aware of it, but back in 2005... You know, what was the checks that were being made? Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, people are producing documentation that's false. And it's around how good are those documentations that they're producing, the individual who's receiving it, and what checks do they do, how much scrutiny do they put into actually looking at the documents. I think this individual... um, called himself a doctor despite him not having a PhD. Um, he falsely claimed to have degrees at a number of universities. He did have a higher level, higher education certificate in social care um, and spent most of his career as a probation officer. Then obviously he's come into the NHS uh, and managed to work his way into a chief executive role and a chairman of an organisation mm. um, using these false qualifications. I think it's interesting yeah, the point you raised there, Kevin, about individuals and when they started work at the NHS and what kind of uh, checks they were subject to or not, mm. as, the, as the case may be at that point. And I think what we see as well is that, you know, given the nature of the the NHS and the the kind of sector it is, that people um, will join an organisation and will get promoted to various roles within the same organisation over the course of their career. And very often the checks are only undertaken if they are at that initial appointment and not for subsequent rounds of rounds of employment. I think also as well, you have the situation of where there's a, a regu- regulation and requirements called the fit and proper persons mm-hmm. tests, which is to make sure that individuals, especially at the senior level, have uh, you know su- su- the right kind of character um, to be able to operate at a senior level within the NHS. And, and these tests are only undertaken at a particular point in time. So if you're doing a criminal records check on somebody, if you're checking to see if they're bankrupt or not, if you're checking to see if they've been struck off as a director of a, or, or as a trustee of a charity, they're only relevant when you actually do those checks. So it's all well and good undertaking those checks at a particular point in time. But unless you've got ways of monitoring people going forwards, then there could be well be lapses uh, that you're not picking up mm-hmm. in relation to individuals who haven't got the proper processes in place. Absolutely. And I think as well, what you were saying, Kevin, around the identity as well, do we know who who the people are? You know, I've got um, experience of cases whereby individuals attend for a job, they bring their evidence of their ID, whether it's a passport, whether it's a driving license, yet that individual wasn't the same person that several weeks later turned up for their ID badge. And, And I think in some areas, you know, here at MIA, if we interviewed somebody for a job, we're pretty much going to see them on a day-to-day basis. Mm. But within the NHS, there are so many posts that, you know, within the bank system, which is sort of the temporary staffing, people will come in and they'll be interviewed um, by an individual who they may never see again for, you know, months, uh, if at all. And therefore, there's an opportunity for individuals to then turn up to organisations. So it's about, as you say, not only the qualifications, but are the people Working within the NHS. And I imagine it's quite awkward if someone turns up on the first day and you think, is that the person from the interview? It's quite quite awkward to have the confidence to challenge somebody. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And and it's about that honesty and integrity. Mm. I mean, this individual was working as a chairman at a hospice 
and um, the person who appointed him said that you know he had made significant progress under his leadership and had no doubts about his ability to do the job. However, he wouldn't have employed him if he'd have known about the fake qualifications because irrelevant of whether even if you need those qualifications to do the job, it's the honesty and integrity of an individual yeah, of yeah. that then mm. brings questions as to it's whether you want them employed. Trust in, issue yeah, between absolutely. the employee and the employer. Mm. which would certainly make it, you know, mm. it may or may not be prosecuted, but it would certainly make it a, a misconduct issue, potentially a gross misconduct issue, yeah. if you've misrepresented your qualifications experience. It's a it's a breach of trust, mm. trust issue. Yeah. And even if, even if people exaggerate things around the edges, you could still argue that that's mm. about a breach of trust. You're misrepresenting yourself yeah. from day one. And, you know, whilst you could put the argument like you've just given there, Claire, that in relation to that individual working in an executive role and they were doing a good job, you know, what about if it's a member of like the medical team who haven't got the appropriate mm. skills and, and qualifications who are operating on, yep. you know, a member of your your family or, or yourself? You know, you wouldn't take the same attitude then saying, oh, well, it doesn't matter because I'm sure mm. they'll do a good job. It's, mm. yeah, you know, you wouldn't be happy at all, would you? So one of the things that we sort of talk about in terms of recruitment controls is risk assessing the risk assessing the positions that you're recruiting to and the level of checks you might want to carry out. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. Yep. And I think in that particular case, you know, there was a um, order once the individual was convicted. So he, he pleaded guilty to two counts of fraud. Um, one of them as the chairman of an, an, an organisation, uh, or a number of NHS organisations, and also the other one regarding the hospice. Um, and he was ordered to hand over just just under a hundred thousand pounds, which was agreed to be the recoverable amount of money that the individual had defrauded. Um, but then he appealed later and um, was successful in that appeal against the confiscation order. But again, the uh, Crown took that to the Supreme Court, so it, it was overturned again. But he appealed. What was the basis for his appeal? Uh, it was around the fact, I think it was the fact that he'd done the job. The trust had, had got value from him because he'd done a good job for the, the two or three years, whatever it was. So, it talks so about why should he have to pay that back? I think that was the, the Yeah, it says, I think the circumstances would be disproportionate as a point of law of general public importance. Mm. Was, there was um, the, I think originally when I first saw this case, the conversation was about the fact he'd already been punished for the fraud with the... Criminal sanction, the the prison sentence. The other point I suppose is interesting we could talk about is the issue that, well, he'd done the job. Mm. Yes, but he'd only done the job reasonably well because he got the job by deception. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But the trust would have had to pay someone to do that job, so have the trust lost out. Mm. So there's another case um, that we were talking about before the recording earlier, going back to the mid-2000s, where an individual who was a chief executive of a combined uh, NHS organisation who had... None of the qualifications that he claimed to have, I think it was about three qualifications, um, academic and professional, and turned out not to have completed any of them. And one of the defences that he had when he went to court was that, but we're a three-star trust. This was in the days when you used to have star ratings for trusts. The prosecution counter-argument is, yes, you you didn't necessarily do a bad job, but somebody could have done a better job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And that's the point you've... You've, you've not given somebody else the opportunity to actually perform better than you performed mm. because you got the job decision by deception. Yeah. Kind of linked to that. I remember a case I looked at many, many years ago now, which actually related to, to a cleaner. He'd, he'd got a job at the trust um, who didn't have the right to work in the UK. So it was found out she didn't have the right to work. And obviously the, the border agency became involved with that. But essentially 
she turned up for every shift. She didn't, she had a you know a good attendance record. She performed well. So the the view was yes, she may have committed fraud and there may be issues around deportation, etc. But actually, the trust wouldn't be looking to recover any of that money because ultimately she turned up for work every day and done a, done a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's getting the balance, I suppose, isn't it? It's from a fraud perspective, mm-hmm. fraud practitioner's perspective, we'd want to say, yeah, let's recover as much money we, as we as we can back. But I suppose. You know, you do have to take other factors into consideration in terms of uh, complying with the law. Yeah. It's, it's finding a balance with it, isn't it? Mm. Because as you sort of say, you know, if they are at least competent in the job to some degree that not many questions are asked, you still need to consider the fact that even if they were okay at the job, they still got it by deception. Yeah. So yeah. that mm. you come back full circle to the breach mm. of trust issue. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think as well, you know, in this particular case, he was leaving, leading a prestigious life based on the money he was able to earn. So irrelevant of the fact that he'd done a good job in terms of his role in those particular organisations, he still got it through mm-hmm. dishonest actions. Mm-hmm. And should he, you know, have been allowed to benefit from that by living the life that he was? Um, I mean, but traditionally we tend to get referrals through that are of this sort of nature, really, where it's falsified qualifications, falsified work experience, employment history, and so on. Um, but there are occasions where you'll find sort of more related type issues, particularly if you're dealing with clinicians. So mm-hmm. I can remember a case probably about 15 years ago where somebody, um, and I think they were an academic, sort of working in an academic institution rather than an NHS institution, but the principle would be the same, where they'd falsified their research record. Mm. So there was a lot of you know, publications that didn't exist, articles yeah. that they'd never actually written and so on and so forth, weren't necessarily particularly relevant to their employment. They weren't decision-making factors in giving that person the job. But again, it comes back to, you know, the misrepresentation, the breach of trust issue, mm-hmm. in that you can, you're demonstrating your capacity to be deceptive. Yeah. I think in a way, it's, it, you know, we're honestly lucky uh, in terms of what we do in that our role is to purely, you know, follow the, the lines of inquiry mm-hmm. and to, and to to prove or, or disprove as the case may be the allegations that are made in these regards. And then it's up to the CPS and the courts then, isn't it, to actually mm-hmm. decide what the sanctions are going to be. So from our perspective, it's, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it, in terms of what we need to do. But I agree with you. It is this perception as well, isn't it, about um, individuals and, and pertaining posts and salaries associated with those that they, they wouldn't be entitled to. And that another individual out there is as a has had that opportunity taken away from them because of the acts of of of, of a fraudster in, in getting that, in getting that post. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose just another case. This is quite a recent one, and you know those of you listening to the podcast may have seen this in some of the sort of news outlets uh, quite recently. Um, this is what February March, I think. Yeah, February March twenty twenty three. Um, so this was a consultant psychiatrist who had falsified um, and forged medical qualifications to work within the NHS for a number of years. So uh, this individual, yeah, you know, was um, sentenced recently to seven years in prison, an investigation that was conducted, um, NHS Counter Fraud Authority were sort of party to this investigation um, where, you know, with regards to the General Medical Council, so this individual had come over, uh, from New Zealand and um, had produced documents back in 1995 to the General Medical Council um, as part of her application to register as a doctor here in the UK. 
Um, the documents were there was a degree certificate for University of Auckland. There was a, also a letter that had been written by a faculty registrar confirming the qualifications that were all um, false. And obviously, these qualifications um, didn't the, the, the false qualifications didn't get picked up on her application. And obviously, as she's continued to work then through the NHS, didn't, didn't the the letter you refer to there was a verification letter. So it was someone saying yes, this person is a, a qualified doctor in yeah. New Zealand. But the verification letter included a misspelling of the word verify. <laughs> so there was a red flag for There was a red flag, never got spotted. Do we know how it came to light? I'm not sure we do. Anyone? I think it's interesting these examples though, isn't it? Because the kind of world we live in now where individuals can move from country to, mm. to country mm. to, to gain employment. You know, it's it's hard at times to get information out of academic institutions and professional bodies that are based Overseas, overseas yeah. Um, yeah. And very often it may be considered to be too difficult, especially for CV. Somebody has a CV where they've had employment in a similar role in other organisations in other countries. They may just think, well, actually, we won't bother looking then at the, the qualifications. We'll assume that everything's okay. And, and, and it's mm. that assumption that then causes the problems later on, like in, in this situation here. There's, um, I mean, you make an interesting point there. One is, is it too difficult to do the check? Because I need to try and get hold of somebody in New Zealand. Mm. Where do I start? Um, you know, it's not a UK institution if you're based in the UK. So there's there's that particular issue. Um, and interestingly, you mentioned, Claire, uh, also about possibly falsif- falsified references as well. So we talk about falsified qualifications, work experience, mm-hmm. employment history. We also come across falsified references where the, the individual who's got the job by deception has basically falsified the reference pertaining to be somebody else as well really. so, yeah we see that quite a lot don't we where people have you know created their an email address um google or whatever a number mm. of sources and they're almost providing themselves with um well, a ref- well, yeah, yeah, yeah not almost they are providing themselves with a reference to to get jobs and again it's about the individual so you know we do training packages don't we where we go out to hr recruitment um teams to sort of try and point some of this stuff out for them to look at. But, you know, we can only investigate what we get told and we're reliant upon the individuals taking these documentation in at the start of employment. The classic example of where prevention is better than trying to cure it by investigation. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. You know, if you can do your checks and, you know, that isn't just all paper-based checks as well. Sometimes it is actually interviewing the candidate as well. And actually sort of drilling down, asking some questions about oh, where did you study and how long were you there for mm. and how did you find it and, you know, did you ever go to such and such a place? Some of that can tease out that it's a fabrication as well. And some of it, you know, is is, is very well documented. So some of these forged documents are, are really good standards. So mm. That's you know. the interesting thing really, isn't it? I mean, as you can say, there can be documents that are put together that are quite... I mean, an email, a false reference is just basically an email. So mm-hmm. as long as you've set up a a fake web-based email account, you can be, pretend to be whoever you want mm. to be. So unless you follow it up and actually want to speak to that person, can I give you a call, and the voice sounds like the person you've just interviewed, then you know they're going to they're have to involve somebody else to yeah. portray themselves as the person who's given the reference. Yeah. But in terms of documentation, you see, you know, bad photocopies. Absolutely. Um, you know, not seeing original certificates, certificates that are still in frames, so you can't actually touch and feel the original documentation. These are all 
issues with me and that all I've seen the original certificate well you saw it through some tempered glass yeah. in a frame but did you pick it up did it feel like proper paper and so on so yeah I've, yeah. I've had a couple of cases with documentations and references so one one case where an individual had clearly given themselves a reference and they were caught out because their spelling wasn't the best and there were certain <laughs> words they spelt wrong and the, the person given the reference also spells spelt the words wrong as well so that was how that individual yeah. was identified mm -hmm. and another case got many years ago when i first joined the nhs um speech and language therapist um who was prosecuted had provided her um certificate um so it's a bit like your registration they have to get it renewed every so many years and it wasn't an excessive amount of money um, but this individual had financial difficulties. And instead of opening up to an employer who said they would have just deducted it from a salary and paid it, um, interviewed an individual for a job and took a copy of this individual's certificate, then um, cut and paste, uh, cut the number, sort I of the, the registration number for mm -hmm. hers. But the interesting part was had they asked for an original, they would have seen it was a mm. little piece, but it was a photocopy and it was accepted as a photocopy. Mm. And you couldn't really identify right, that. Yeah. They literally just covered over. And as part of that investigation, I interviewed the individual who came for the job, whose certificate it was. And she was quite, she was like, you know, I really did think I'd got that mm. job because I did a really good interview. Mm -hmm. And again, probably would have, but the fraudster saw it as an opportunity mm. to um, be able to carry on a registration for another couple of years. And well, the, the right things. to work training that, that I, I sometimes deliver to our trusts and we talk to recruitment teams, I think they would always request an original these yeah. days. Yeah. Fingers crossed that. You would happen. hope yeah. so. Yeah. yeah, you would hope. I mean, the um, it just reminds me, talking about an old case, the one we were discussing, you know, off air beforehand, where the individual had, was a very senior level, chief executive level, and had actually fabricated qualifications and even got them framed and had basically constructed the qualifications that they claimed mm -hmm. to have and got caught out because, you know, the crest that they put on the certificate didn't exist in the year that they got the qualification and the department that he got the qualification mm -hmm. from hadn't even been created at the university in that particular point. So they'd made the mistake of looking mm -hmm. at what was available now, yeah. not what was available back in the, the early 1980s when they would have mm -hmm. received the certificate. Mm -hmm. But and I, th I think that goes again what we were saying before around the historic when somebody first, as you say, Kate, comes yeah. into an organisation. Mm -hmm. It was only, I think, right, Paul, in that case, that this individual was looking for a, a salary enhancement that they were asked to then provide their qualification yeah. certificates again and panic This, this was actually a, the chair of the old Strategic Health Authority back in the day and was just sort of curious as to why this individual hadn't, process the salary payments because they needed to refresh the documentation. Mm. I think they'd been lost in a move at some point. So, oh, yeah, you need to bring them back in again. We haven't got any paperwork on your file. You need to bring them all back in so we can just file them. And then when they were brought back in, you know, fabricated and in frames, um, the individual just felt something didn't quite feel right about them. Um, couldn't put his finger on it, but that was enough to refer it for us for investigation and then we unpicked it all on the back of that and that's it and that's what we were saying before around we're reliant upon the, the ears and the people on the ground sort of 
been... Someone having an inkling there's something wrong yeah. and mm. getting us involved. It's been suspicious. But I think it's important as well to make sure you have a consistent policy that's applied in terms of recruitment at whatever level it is within an organisation because I suppose some of the risks are the more senior you are within, organi- within an organisation, the more opportunity you may have to kind of avoid producing those documents in a timely manner because, you know, individuals on a HR team may feel a bit reticent about challenging a consultant mm. or, a you know, an yeah. executive director to provide certificates, etc. Whereas, you know, for more junior members of staff, they may be more kind of vigilant and on, on the case yeah. in terms of getting all that documentation together. And that sort of intimidation of challenging somebody in a position of authority or not wanting to ask awkward questions, again, comes back to another episode of Talking Fraud where we look at some of the social social engineering aspects. So, we, you know, that links in with a lot of what we're increasingly seeing at the moment. Um, but I think just to sort of try and pull a few things together... Um, the NHS employer uh, requirements of the checks that need to be carried out for a new substantive employee are actually quite robust mm-hmm. if they're carried out. They mm-hmm. look at right to work, fitness to, to work as well. They look at the qualifications, whether they need to be DBS checked, employment history and so on and so forth. So they are quite robust It's it's if they're carried out. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're noticing increasingly, and this again may be a, another Talking Forward uh, podcast episode, is where you're in, there's an increasing reliance upon the use of agency staff to fill in for a lack of substantive positions. And there is a reliance there that the agencies are undertaking some of these background checks. And as we're seeing with increasing referrals come in about the questionable nature of some agency personnel that are working in the NHS setting, that's uh, that sort of leaves quite a bit to be desired. And as I say, that might feature in another episode of Talking Fraud. Yeah, I think we've had... You know, examples of that, haven't we, where individuals have been employed through an agency to work at a trust uh, and then found out they haven't perhaps got the qualifications experience that mm-hmm. they, they said they had. Um, and I think it's kind of um, also linked to the some of the points, you know, you were talking about earlier about that increased use of bank and agency staff within the NHS. And we've got so many vacancies at the moment that yeah. they're, mm. they're becoming more and more prevalent, aren't they? And how do we know that the people who are engaged through an agency and turn up for an interview, actually the people who are going to turn up and actually do the work. But that's a risk, isn't it, for the NHS as a whole mm-hmm. and recruitment teams. Mm-hmm. If their people are so desperate to fill fill spaces, mm-hmm. are recruitment getting pressured to fill. do your checks when yeah. you to get this person started? Exactly, yeah. And mm-hmm. what checks the organisations mm-hmm. then go on to do to sort of on the due diligence of the agencies, mm-hmm. the, the organisations that they're using and the staff that they're producing. So any final comments on this before we sort of pull things together? No, not really. I think, you know, it's it's unfortunately it's happening and, you know, it's happening at all different levels within the NHS. Um, but, you know, as I say, we're reliant upon individuals to sort of identify it and then be able to report it to us to investigate. Okay, thanks for everybody's contribution. Um, I'm sure it's something that uh, we may talk about again in the future, certainly with regards to some of the agency staffing issues. Um, It's an ongoing discussion. It's not going to go away soon. hasn't gone away for for many years that we've all been involved in NHS counter-fraud investigations and investigations in other sectors as well. So thanks for listening to another episode of Talking Fraud, and we'll see you on the next one.